0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and our entire back catalog is available 24-7 via podcast. Just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow wherever you get yours. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and mine at Laura Zarrow. After almost a year into the pandemic, we are all hungry for new content and each other. Well, I say that partly to remind you to check out our podcast. My real goal today is to bring that hunger that fundamentally human need for stimulation and connection into high relief. As today's guest, Norena Hertz, explains in her fascinating new book, The Lonely Century, How to Restore Human Connection in a World Pulling Apart, loneliness is more prevalent than ever before and more important to remedy than most people realize. In fact, it may be the defining condition of the 21st century, destabilizing not just our personal well-being, but our society overall. Norena Hertz is a renowned thought leader, academic, and broadcaster named by The Observer as one of the world's leading thinkers and Vogue as one of the world's most inspiring women. She's one of our own alumnae, having earned her MBA from the Wharton School prior to her PhD from Cambridge University. Her previous bestsellers, The Silent Takeover, The Debt Threat, and Eyes Wide Open, have been published in more than 20 countries, and her opinion pieces have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and The Financial Times. She's hosted her own show on SiriusXM and spoken at TED, the World Economic Forum in Davos, and Google's Zeitgeist. So in other words, we've got a superstar here today, and I couldn't be more delighted. Narina, welcome to the show. Thank you so
1: much, Laura, for having me on. I'm delighted to be on it.
0: So the book is extraordinarily timely, yet also really deeply researched, really well constructed. When did you start working on this idea and why? It doesn't feel
1: like something that just bubbled up in the last 10 months. (sighs) No, you see, even before the pandemic struck, we had built a lonely world. And I started researching this book probably about five years ago. Uh, It was actually my students, I was teaching at university, and it was my students who alerted me to something going on. I noticed that more and more students were coming into my office in office hours and confiding in me that they felt lonely. And this was a new phenomenon. I'd taught at university for many years, but I hadn't seen this before. And there was something else I observed that was different. It was when I set my students' group assignments. I saw that quite a few of them were struggling with interacting face to face. And I actually raised it with a friend of mine who runs one of the US's most prestigious universities, not Penn, and and he said to me, we're seeing exactly the same thing here. In fact, it's so bad here that we're having to run remedial how to read a face in real life classes for our incoming students because so many are coming with they're so used to communicating on screen and on their phones that they've lost the ability to communicate face to face. So I thought, gosh, that is really interesting. Something's going on. And at the same time, in my academic research, I was looking at the rise. It's very different. I was looking at the rise of right-wing populism across the globe. Why were people voting for leaders like Donald Trump or Marine Le Pen in France, or Matteo Salvini in Italy. And one of the things that came out time and time again from my interviews with right-wing populist voters was how lonely they felt, how craving they were of community, how invisible they felt, and how they were finding this community and feeling that they were being seen and heard in right-wing populist movements. So I thought, okay, loneliness, again, um, coming to me in a very in a different way, And then I had a third aha moment all happening at roughly the same time I had bought. uh, Well, maybe slightly later, I had bought an Alexa. And I'm very sorry now if all your devices (laughs) go off in the room. Um, And I noticed that as I was, you know, I write books and I spend a lot of time at home, even before self-isolation became the norm. I was self-isolating and um, I realized that I was becoming increasingly affectionate towards my Alexa and and you know I'm feeling somewhat attached to her I mean not in a weird speaky way but just (laughs) kind of just like it was nice having her in the house and um and which got me thinking about the role that social robots And virtual assistants are likely to play in our futures moving forwards, especially as they become more sophisticated. So I had these three very different um, aha moments at kind of really um, similar times, which made me think this is something I really want to look at. Is loneliness the thread um, that's linking together some of these seismic societal political and also economic shifts that we're seeing nowadays and I think that it is so even before the pandemic one in five Americans were lonely and even before the pandemic one in five American millennials said that they didn't have a single friend which is shocking of course the pandemic has made this all even more timely Um, research that came out just a few weeks ago said that around 50 percent of americans currently feel lonely 50 percent,
0: and it's heartbreaking to hear that when we think about it from just our empathy of what it means to live and carry loneliness i mean in the book you also shared with us and i'd love it if you can help our listeners grasp just a little of it of what the big impact is of loneliness loneliness is on our health and well-being and productivity
1: Yes. So when we think of loneliness, we typically think about the mental health impact it has. And of course, it can have a very serious mental health impact. Um, Loneliness can make us feel more depressed, more anxious at the extremes, even increases our risk of suicide. But it's not just our mental health that loneliness affects. It also affects our physical health in a very serious and profound way. Why this is, is because when we're lonely, Because we're designed in evolutionary terms not to be alone, because we are essentially creatures of togetherness, what happens when we're lonely is that our blood pressure goes up, our heart rate goes up, our levels of cortisol in our body, our stress levels go up. All of these essentially signals kind of saying to our body, don't be alone, go and find (laughs) your tribe, hunt and gather with others. trouble is in modern life, we ignore that and we remain alone lonely um for weeks for months even for years and chronic loneliness so feelings of loneliness um that has sustained mean that we're constantly in this state of high alert fight or flight which is really bad for our bodies which is why researchers have found that loneliness is actually as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day
0: oh my god yeah. yeah, so it's not just a matter of you know compassion;
1: it's a healthcare issue. Absolutely, it's probably the biggest public health issue that we're not talking about.
0: It's staggering, and there's a really um, a deep irony here because, as you've described it, we have never had a more digitally connected world. Never mind a digitally connected generation who are expressing such intense loneliness. So how is that constant digital engagement increasing the loneliness? And what is it that's making us such addicts
1: for it? So I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head with your use of the word constant, because that's the difference. There've been talk in the past about, you know, basically every time a new technology arrives, there are people who say, oh no, you know, this is going to be damaging. When televisions came, even when the telephone came, someone wrote (laughs) to the New York Times at the time, you know, this is going to destroy civility. So there have always been these outcries. The difference between our smartphones and social media is the extent to which we're on them constantly, perma-connected, perma-addicted. And the devices are designed, of course, to be addictive. Why this matters, why this makes us more lonely is because we are swapping in-person interactions with digital ones and at, the ex- and at the expense of our in-person ones. And we've, we've all been guilty of this, mm-hmm. you know, sitting in the room with our partners or our friends or our kids and not really present with them because we've been on our phone distracted. So we've been not present with them. And there's been research which shows that even when a phone is put on a table between a couple and it's turned off and the couple aren't touching it, the couple feel less connected to each other and also less empathetic towards Oh my gosh. Yeah. And when it comes to children, really disturbing um, research coming out from, uh, do you call them in the United States, nursery school teachers, Mm -hmm. Um, preschool. Yeah. So nursery school teachers who are saying that so many children are now arriving at school, lacking the most basic social skills because their parents are spending so much time on their phones that they're not teaching them that basic interaction social skills that you normally would get so you have um so we're kind of all not only young people increasingly addicted to our phones at the expense of our real world relationships also the quality of our relationships on our devices just isn't as good is the quality of in-person interactions. I mean, you know, we're all right now grateful that we have technology because it's the way that many of us are able to connect with our friends and family, and I'm not dismissing or discounting that. But yet, I'm sure we all would rather be having those face-to-face, in-person conversations. And we're aware that it's just not the same, even when we're on Zoom, even when we're seeing each other. So, Noreena, this kind of... um... It's so I feel
0: guilty um, as I look back on my own interactions at home and my own addiction to my phone. Um, some of it is driven by an anxiety of being ever present at work, mm. and some of it um, I think was explained by what you called the a dopamine response. That um, so talk to us a little bit and help um, our listeners understand. These aren't just bad habits. There's some brain chemistry going on here that's encouraging them, yes?
1: Absolutely. So each time we get a ping on our phone or each time we post something on social media and it gets retweeted or liked or we get a new follower or friend, what happens is, is that we get what's known as a dopamine rush in our body. These are these feel good chemicals flood our body. I mean, it's similar to and really it's similar to taking a drug, like even a serious drug like cocaine. And, um, and, and we, crave, we, we crave this feeling once we've experienced it. Like any addict, we crave it. And so we crave. And so what happens is people post things in order to get liked and retweeted and and feel very bad when they post things and they don't get liked or retweeted, um, which is something that the young find particularly painful. Uh, There was one young boy who I interviewed, Peter, 14-year-old, and he told me it was very painful. He told me about how he would post on Instagram and then he'd be Waiting, 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 hoping that somebody liked his post. And when they didn't, asking himself, what am I doing wrong? Feeling so invisible, he told me. Um, so yeah, so they're addictive and they also they also make us feel that everyone else is more popular than us. Because you scroll on other people's social media feeds and you everyone looks like they're having the best time and they're hanging out with friends as, nowadays, but still As <laughs> okay. if that's all real. <laughs> Yeah, Not just a performative illusion. Exactly. Exactly. So we're becoming, so we become, the risk is we become disconnected, not only from each other, but also from our own true selves as we feel ever more um, compelled to perform ourselves and to present only this perfect vision of ourselves. When it comes to work, and that's something that I talk about, I write, I have a couple of chapters in my book, which look at the workplace specifically. And you're absolutely right to say that we always should question ourselves about this always being on and whether we always have to be, because um, I'm really guilty of kind of checking my emails late into the evening and, (laughs) and, and I'm really guilty of the smartphone addiction. And so, you know, I'm having to be really super strict with myself and literally I try and move my phone so that it's out of arm's reach in the evening. So set a cutoff point like 7 p.m. and just think, okay, I'm going to keep it out of reach. I now keep my phone outside my bedroom at night because otherwise there is a risk that I will reach over. And if I wake up in the middle of the night, open it because we're addicted to it. Yes, we We want that rush. And I actually also take a digital Sabbath and I'm trying to be really strict about that. So Where I really do spend one day a week not checking emails, not on social media, not on my phone. And and it's amazing how um, refreshing it is and how much more creative you can be as a result. Yes,
0: I did it after reading the book for the first time this weekend, and it made a huge difference. It also made me think about going back to when we talk about particularly our kids, um, what you call Generation K, that when we were kids... um, and I think for a long time, particularly since adolescence was in, emerged as a social construct, we were seeking the approval of our parents. We were um, concerned with a set of close relationships of people whose judgment about us mattered and would be reflected back to us on a regular basis. Um, The presence or absence of it, the form it took may have led some to, you know, great success or years of therapy, but it was about our most intimate relationships. We now have a whole generation that's seeking that affirmation, but they're seeking it from strangers worldwide on a public forum. And so that we've invested great meaning in things that shouldn't have meaning at all. Mm-hmm. When people don't get the affirmation that they're seeking, you wrote about this connection between um, loneliness and powerlessness. Is yes. that where some of it comes in that you're trying to affect change? You're trying to get what you need, but using these art, these kind of ma- these technology based tools, they're not going to give us what we're ultimately looking for. And in fact, the absence of that can cause a whole new kind of pain and suffering and, in fact, danger. Um,
1: yes, I think, in part, um, that's absolutely right. And these devices both encourage us to be um, more performative, encourage, encourage people to be meaner and crueler. You know, tweets which have mean words in them like hate, are retweeted 30% more than tweets that don't. Um, 65% of UK students have experienced cyberbullying firsthand. So, you know, so making so really, which is why I go as far in my book as to say that social media companies are in many ways, the tobacco companies of the 21st century, and really should be regulated to such because you know, we it's really hard to fight the addiction on, on our own and it's really hard for children too. So when they, when it comes to children especially, I think um, governments really need to step in and I would go so far as to say to ban addictive social media for children, um, putting the onus then on, on the companies to design products that are less addictive and hopefully also reward kindness rather than hate which they currently do as well but powerlessness is another theme yes that comes out through my book time and time again because loneliness isn't only about feeling that you're craving company and connection with your friends it's also about feeling disconnected from your employer Mm -hmm. from your workplace from your government from the state it's about craving um, visibility, um, being seen, being cared for, whether by your friends or family or by these bigger institutions. And that's something I talk about as well a lot in the book.
0: Um, As you were referring to social media and how the nature of what's discussed, how it's discussed is so pernicious, made me also wonder, in the workplace, Um, the way that we've become so dependent on email and text messaging, whether it's via Slack or instant messaging, as a primary way of engaging with our colleagues. I've always felt like something's missing there, that the nature of our communication and our collaboration changes. And that's without having done the research. Share with us what you've found about this kind of... it's a nature of dialogue that's not in real time. So it's kind of, I assert my thoughts, you assert your ass- thoughts, and it seems like we do it without any grace or
1: compassion along the way. Yes, for sure. So I think there are a few reasons why these kind of conversations feel ultimately dissatisfying on the whole. First, what we know from the research is that the more stripped back a form of communication is, the less empathetic you feel towards the person you're communicating with. So, you know, if you're face-to-face, you can read their body language, you can sense them, you can see whether their arms are crossed, you can see whether they're smiling. Um, So that's the best form. That's where you're most likely to feel empathetic. Whereas a text, the Slack message, you know, that's messages reduced where you don't see the person. Things like irony, very hard to communicate. (laughs) Yes. Humor. Anger, all of them. Also, you know, what we know is that the busy you are, the cursor your emails are. And so, you know, how many people always remember to say please or thank you in the email? Um, you know, language can become very uncooperative um over email and so make you feel more distanced. What's fascinating is that um there was research, and it's think I talk about in my book, there was research around open plan offices. Yes. So open plan offices, that's the way that the workplace has typically evolved um, across the United States in recent years and indeed across the globe. But there's fascinating research that shows that when people move into open plan offices, instead of communicating more in person with their colleagues, which you would expect because they're all sitting there around with each other, they actually communicate more in these lesser forms of communication, email, text, Slack. Yeah, fascinating. So I have a couple of questions about that because when I
0: read it, um, that whole section of the book, it was so well explained and fascinating to think about how we subject, we hide ourselves in those environments. That um, as you were saying, you know, we tend to um, email more, text more, cause we need to be quiet out of respect for everybody else. But mm-hmm. there's also that growing fear of who's hearing what I'm saying out of context and what will be the impact of it. Um, I've existed in both spaces and I found that the larger the, the greater the number of people in the open space, um, the more likely that was to occur. But when I worked, my background's in design, when I've worked in creative studios, in an innovation group where there were five of us in one space, um, we did indeed have a kind of collaboration with one another. So is that just my
1: experience or is scale and context one of the issues there? I think that's a great question. And it absolutely makes sense that if you feel that there is a kind of authentic community that you are part of, then um, then being in a room with other people who you feel kind of genuinely bonded to, you know, probably feels fine and when I've spent time and when i visited friends at design studios or in architecture practices one of the things I always am surprised at is how quiet everyone is that <laughs> I think that that's sometimes also that's the kind of um, way people are and so you're kind of also respecting each other's space I think in open plan offices where you know people are noisy some people are on the phone some people are speaking people are talking I mean that when it's this big room full of people you don't even know Often you don't have your own desk even nowadays because that's the thing that's gone hand in hand with open plan offices. The rise of hot desking, you know, a place where you don't even have a place to put your photograph of your loved one or a plant um, sold to us as the epitome of freedom. But actually, (laughs) depressing. there was this one woman I interviewed in my book, Carla. She unfortunately had to take a few weeks off work because she had to have an operation. And none of her colleagues even noticed because she never had a regular desk. So they didn't know she nobody realized she was she wasn't there. I mean, quite depressing. So. Um, so I think scale definitely a um, definitely a part of it. And, and probably also the type of um, the type of profession and kind of. Yes. So so, really and different. also,
0: it sounds like in that it's not just the the scale, but as you said, hot desk, that question of we mm-hmm. could be in a sea of 100 or 1000 people, or 10. But do we have a place? Do we have an identity? Do we belong?
1: Yes. And are we seen? And yeah. as <laughs> opposed to just accidentally heard when we don't want to be. <laughs> yes, because uh, 40% of US office workers feel lonely before the pandemic. I mean, that is a lot of people feeling lonely and this is bad for business because it comes at a serious business cost lonely workers are less productive less motivated more likely to quit than workers who are not in fact the single biggest determinant for whether somebody will be productive at work is whether they have a friend at work And so we hear organizations talk all the time about how people are their most
0: important and valuable asset, yet the hot office makes us think that asset might actually be the real estate, and that if we don't wake up and realize how important people are, um, we may be losing more than just some of our short-term returns. So as we talk about this kind of epidemic of loneliness, one of the places where it seems to have resided for a long time is particularly with women who ironically are never alone. (laughs) Why is it, and especially now during the pandemic, that um, despite a kind of busyness, a constant engagement, Zoom meetings all day, um, kids and partners, which we may be lucky enough to have running around our houses, we're still feeling this kind of intense
1: loneliness. How can we come to understand it better? Yes. So that is um, a striking piece of data that has come out that during the pandemic, there are three groups who've become more, I mean, everyone on average has become lonelier, but there are three groups who've become disproportionately lonely, the young people on low income and women. So why women? So I'm trying to kind of unpack this. We don't have empirical evidence for this yet, but I think there are a few things at play. First of all, sadly tragically what we've seen during the pandemic has been a really significant rise in domestic abuse Mm -hmm. and there is nothing lonelier than being in a in an abusive relationship so part of the reason we're seeing women unfortunately disproportionately lonely is because they feel trapped in these bad relationships the other reason women i think are disproportionately feeling lonely right now it's partly because of some of the stuff you said, they have a lot on their plate. Um, children, often, husbands. And we know all too well that these home duties are not equally shared, typically. I mean, even today, even today, women take on hugely disproportionate amounts of childcare and housework duties. We know that. And again, you know, that feeling of being trapped, exacerbated by the pandemic, when you don't have perhaps the whole usual support system that you might have when it comes to helping with kids, helping with cleaning your house, helping with meals, you know, means that a lot of women are feeling trapped, powerless, that they can't cope with these additional burdens. And the third reason, unfortunately, why women are disproportionately affected is to do with the intersection between um, loneliness, low income, and women. And we know that women have disproportionately lost more jobs during this pandemic, particularly lower income retail jobs, service jobs, jobs in hospitality. So there are a lot of women who are not only worrying about their children, trying to manage the homes but also worrying about how they can afford to live i mean and so and that that sense of worry about your future about how you can afford the rent about how you can afford your meal is inevitably linked with a feeling of being unseen uncared for and lonely so it's that
0: powerlessness in so many different realms that contributes to it it mm-hmm. also sounds like and um, I've worried about this too. I'm engaging with people all day via Zoom. I finish Zoom and I'm engaging with my family. But at the same time, I feel like. Um, I'm, the introvert in me might be anxious going to a cocktail party, like spontaneous conversation, the kind that used to happen in the hallway at work or while we were all getting lunch in the kitchen. Um, that's not part of our lives anymore. Um, is that just me or is that something that other people are experiencing?
1: Laura, everyone is experiencing this and we're all missing it. Um you know we're missing what I call micro exchanges, all those micro exchanges that we have in our typical day, whether it's you know when we pick up our coffee in the morning and we chat to the barista or that catch up with a colleague at the water cooler. I mean, all of these moments that punctuate our day helps us feel more connected to others and we don't have them. And instead we're going to these scheduled meetings where there's no time for chit chat built in. And anyway, chit chat feels rather forced on these medium, especially if you're in some group meeting when everyone's (laughs) kind of looking at you. So it's that, you know, that you don't have that privacy that you could have a quiet conversation on the side. joke with someone that's hard to do on zoom so we have we have to work extra hard right now at thinking about how can we create these moments of more serendipitous encounters and you know even if when we're on our daily walk even if we've got our mask on and we're keeping socially distanced you know consciously nodding to the person um, who walks by who's walking their dog and saying hello good morning like that makes a difference or when we go in and buy our groceries if we are still able to go into a shop right now to do so you know actually taking that time to exchange a few words with the shopkeeper or the greengrocer that can make a big difference to how we feel the other thing that can make a really big difference is thinking is there a way we can volunteer within our local community right now because that's a way to actually connect with other people and meet strangers as well because we're missing that there's meeting with strangers that are part and parcel um, of our normal lives and actually the good thing about volunteering is that not only do we help others but it's actually good for us people who help others live longer and have healthier lives than people who don't.
0: It sounds like, as part of our isolation, it's not just what we're not receiving in terms of interaction and affirmation, but it's also that by not having the same chance to give to other people, we're missing other ways of connecting that have really deep and long term benefits
1: for all of us. Absolutely. And the danger is, and again, you know, I can have days where I'm guilty of this myself the danger is that you know, the pandemic's pretty grueling and, you know, it's testing us in ways we've never been tested before. And there are those days when one's instinct is just to hunker down and withdraw. Mm -hmm. And if we kind of give in to that loneliness tendency, um, that can be really problematic because the lonely we, we are, the harder it then is to reach out. So, um, so so we really have to do everything we can to kind of push push that away that feeling and even when we're feeling like withdrawing kind of really push ourselves to actually make that call or send a text to someone because by doing so you know not only will they feel better but we'll feel better too because we'll feel more connected I'm wondering what managers
0: can do to help. Um, I was talking with my staff recently about the winter break between you know, Christmas and New Year's and why it's such a revelation, why it's so precious for us. And we all agreed, it's not just all of the obvious things, it's holidays, it's time with family, we're not at work, but there's um, this profound relief that comes when we're trying to take time off when our colleagues also have time off. And that constant pinging of our devices, the email back and forth, it stops. Um, we're not getting a backlog of work because we took vacation while everybody else is working or feel that pressure to dive in. Um, where are, how can we take some of that and bring that into our day-to-day lives in ways that might help us connect? Should we be de- declaring a time out from work for our staffs
1: every day so that they can go feel a little more human? So some companies are doing exactly that in Europe. Um, In fact, even before the pandemic, a a very big uh, grocery retailer across Europe, they uh, said that employees couldn't send emails to each other in the evenings. Um, Daimler, one of Germany's biggest car manufacturers, um, they banned um, emails when staff were on holidays. They were told that they couldn't send emails to each other. So there are companies actually doing this in Europe and, um, you know, and enabling their staff to take that time out. Um, often the tone is set from the top. Um, I'm on the board of Warner Music Group and it's something that Warner Music Group has been ta- you know, taking very seriously for the past few years. In the UK, uh, they uh, initiated a whole initiative really um, where the message was when you're out of the office, when you're on vacation, you know, stay on vacation. And um, and one of the things that was fascinating was in a way, um, whereas the older stuff kind of got that, young some of the younger stuff needed almost kind of coaching for how to be offline. Like, how do you then manage things so that when you're offline, um, your team knows what to do, etc. So planning for being offline because it was such a new phenomenon, <laughs> being disconnected. <laughs> It's funny that you
0: bring that up when I was reading about that when you mentioned it in the book. um, My daughter and I were just reminiscing about this. This was maybe um, she was 11 or 12 at the time. And we were both on our phones texting. We were on the train leaving the city and we missed our stop. (laughs) and the batteries were dying on our phone. And so we wound up getting off at the next station. Both of our phone batteries were dead. And she was really frightened. She had never existed in a world before where we couldn't call for help. We couldn't use our phones as a solution. And as if this was really a crisis. And I took it as an opportunity to say, no, there are actually ways to solve these problems without these tools. We did it for many, many years. But it woke me up to a whole generation that's not used to existing without these devices and tools how can we start to bring that like for those of us who have small teams or large teams and bring that into our workforces Mm -hmm. what are some of those skills like you said how do you prepare to be offline how can we start to teach that to people so that we can all benefit from it
1: yes well i think part of it is having this open conversation with your team and actually kind of recognizing that what If you're an older leader, might seem um, rather straightforward, might not seem straightforward to a generation who are permanently on their phones. So um, so I think kind of really helping them through that. Um, Another thing uh, we did at Warner Music Group was in meetings, um, it actually instigated a policy, so this is for when we're back in the office, which hopefully we will be before too long. Um, Actually, when people were in meetings, in a meeting room, Put your phones in a basket so they had baskets on the table for people to put their phones because otherwise the temptation is we've all been in meetings where people are kind of half concentrating half on their phones i love that idea the other there's a lot in my book i talk about and this is a bit of a recurring theme the importance of eating together and that's something which again um, can be uh recreated once we go back into the office there's fascinating research uh, which shows that companies of firefighters perform twice as well if they eat together than if they don't which i love and that's something easily kind of fixable at work it's about you know creating a table um, where people can eat together and actually encouraging them to do so at the same time so many different ways that managers can actually um address this and um and as lo- once they realize that it's an issue, they need to. For those of you
0: who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio on Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Norena Hertz about her book, The Lonely Century, How to Restore Human Connection in a World Pulling Apart. Norena, I love that you say that about setting up the table. In our office, I have a team that varies from about seven to 10 people. Um, one of the things that I did when I got the, my first chance to create the layout of our offices was I created a family kitchen. We put a giant table in it with seven or eight chairs, a family style refrigerator. And I was hoping that if I built it, they would come and they really did. What I found was that the staff, um, and it was a combination of things that was also a credit to people on the team, but food became central. They would Reach out to each other. Go out in West Philadelphia, where our offices are. Go and buy food, or they bring food in and warm it up and get it out of the family fridge, and then everyone would come back and gather at the table to eat. And I, I found that. that it built these beautiful relationships between the staff, mm-hmm. and um, it just it warmed my heart when I would like, be an earshot of my office. I could hear the busy chatter in the kitchen, kind of like they were working, you know, in your kitchen at home. But I really felt like it started to create some real cohesion and bonded the team together and gave them a place to learn about each other as people.
1: Yes, so important. Those informal bonds, so important. Um, I interviewed somebody who works with the British military, and he said that one of the reasons um, he is um, getting a lot more soldiers coming to him feeling stressed and disconnected from their fellow soldiers, which obviously in the case of soldiers is a bad thing is he believes because they've stopped eating together communally. A Communal meal makes all the difference in the world. So
0: there was another part of your book that I found um, so interesting. Um, and it was where you talked about, and this is switching now into, you were talking about politics through it in ways that were really insightful and important. Um, and there was something that you mentioned that were, that made me think about our communities, whether it's our small workplace or the community in which we live, but the phrase was contemporary deliberative democracy initiatives. And with this idea that if they build it, they will stay. Could you help explain what it is and how it works? Because it seems something that could be profoundly useful and not hard to implement.
1: Yes. So this really speaks to the fact that people want to have voice. Um, being loneliness is also about, uh, being lonely is also about feeling unseen and unheard. So whether it's in your workplace or your community, the challenge is how do you make your staff or how do you make your community members of your community feel that they are seen and heard? And here we can draw from um, a whole range of experiments that have been taking place in recent years at local politics, local government levels. Um, in the United Kingdom, for example, there was a really great initiative done by a local council, I guess that's like, almost like a city council in the US, I guess, and um, around climate change. And the city wanted to decide what they should do about climate change. And they decided to co-create their policies with residents. And they got a group of residents, a um, random group of residents kind of along the census lines so representative of the community to come together and this group met for a number of sessions and were charged with coming up with policies and they had trained um you know people kind of helping them understand what the issues were and it was fascinating to look at the process because you saw different people with very different views some people were pro um, doing something about climate change. Some people were climate change deniers almost, um, but coming together. And the one thing they were told was they had to come up with 12 solutions. So it was so they just had to come up with that. And that process of working together, of coming up with your ideas, of having to respectfully listen to others and civilly agree or disagree. Um, that process itself is incredibly valuable. So this isn't about leaders handing everything over to their staff and saying, you make all the decisions and I'll follow them. But it's about instigating processes whereby people have ways of being seen and heard. And where you as the manager, you know, of course, you ultimately, you know, and you need to set this up clearly if you're doing this at work from the start to manage expectations. So, you know, if you say this is a process where I really want to hear ideas, I really want to get your input. I really want us together to come up with things, but be prepared. I'm not always going to agree and decide to do. But when I won't, I will explain why I haven't. That's the important thing. That's the way to get your staff to feel really part of something because alongside the crisis of loneliness at work is a crisis of disengagement at work with 85% of um, employees feeling disengaged. 85%? Yes. Yes. That's for the sake of argument, almost everyone. Yes. So, I mean, so much that needs to be done. And the other thing, and maybe this speaks to women particularly, that that where I think companies could do a lot better, is around valuing qualities like kindness and compassion in the workplace. Because these are not traditionally qualities that have been valued. You know, instead, it's been qualities like competitiveness or determination, <laughs> or tenacity. I'm not saying we don't need those qualities in the 21st century, we do, but we also need qualities like kindness and compassion and care, which have been really devalued and ignored. You know, They're not typically singled out as things that employees get rewarded on. And one company that I looked at um, is actually bucking the trend here, Cisco, the global technology company, because what they do is they actively incentivize people to be kind and nice to each other. They have a scheme whereby anyone at any level in the company from the top to the bottom can nominate anyone else in the company for a cash reward of up to $10,000 for being kind or helpful or nice and Cisco was voted the best company in the world to work for last year, so oh obviously
0: pays off. <laughs> you know, I love hearing this not only because I've had a motto with my team, which is just be nice and feed people, and it sounds like <laughs> that has some real value. Um, but that it, we know. Look, um, I work with scholars who advance the values of generosity. Um, these make a this makes a huge difference in our workplace experience and the output of what we're doing together. But isn't there? Um, a potential trap there where kindness and um, for when women are, that women can get trapped in the workplace by the gender traps that come with doing the office housework, being the nice girl. Talk to me a little bit about where the
1: distinction is and about how women can navigate this successfully. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point and it's a real point. And we know from research that Women who are perceived, unfortunately, as being super helpful often pay the price because they're viewed as not having these other traits, which are really valid. So I think it's about convincing that you can do both like you can out compete, out negotiate, out assert your male colleagues, because women, unfortunately, always have to overperform and <laughs> outdo their male colleagues. Um, but at the same time, lead with compassion, lead with care and lead with um, with the mo- with the motive to enhance everyone around you's personal dignity And I think the two are reconcilable, but you also have to outperform on the other on the other side, I think is the reality right now. Um, yeah, for sure. So and, do- and don't and be careful not to fall into some of the more obvious traps like you know, don't you know, be kind and compassionate, but don't be offering to make the tea. Right.
0: <laughs> that you can care about people without forsaking your role in the organization Definitely. and the kind of mutual dignity that should be expected from everyone. Um, I want to step back to something that you were talking about before, which is um, when we were talking about that deliberity. De- de- the, Deliberative democracy initiative. And particularly, I loved how you explained it because it made it seem like it is a thing that we can bring into our own communities and our own environments. You mentioned that there were facilitators. Um, And I'm gathering that facilitating a dialogue like this is not unimportant. Um, Could you share a little bit about what the um, training was of facilitators? And for those of us that are looking to bring some of this into our own lives, um, what are the values or um, kind of core competencies that we could try and learn ourselves when we're trying to facilitate these kinds of discourses?
1: Yes. So I think one of the key things the facilitator needs to do is to listen. Um, The other key thing is they and really important is to make sure that people that the people speaking different people are speaking and that somebody isn't monopolizing um, the voice. Because, of course, in these deliberative settings, the extrovert, the loud person, often the guy um, (laughs) is more likely to take up the oxygen if the facilitator doesn't make sure that that isn't the case. So I think two key skills, listen, um, be able to paraphrase and repeat back. So this is summarize. So I have that skill as well, but also make sure that different people are being heard. So those are really, I think the three key skills. So to be able to um, give different people voice, um, make sure, people feel heard and also re-articulate what people are saying <laughs> so that it's clear
0: so when you do that re-articulation um and i'm going to do a, a little bit of it right now part of that is reflecting back to make sure that i've heard you and gotten the right meaning of what you're saying
1: absolutely that's it that's absolutely it so because then yes and you feel heard um But also sometimes people can give rather convoluted answers to things. So it also can just help clarify what exactly is being said so that the rest of the group can understand it. So So you sometimes have to translate a bit.
0: But it sounds like, Narina, this, like many of the other things that you've talked about, are all mechanisms that can help get us back to a place where we hear each other, where we feel heard and respected, and we feel a sense of power in our own world and our own lives. And that it might be a recipe um, to changing some of what could otherwise be kind of scary.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we're at a time where the mission to reconnect, um, whether as a nation, or um, within our workplaces or within our communities is a very strong and profound one, and hopefully there are lots of ideas in the book around how we can do this. I couldn't agree more. I found many. So, Narina, I thank you for doing all
0: of this fascinating and important work, and for joining us today. People want to find you and find the book.
1: Where should they look? Um, well, they can. They should be able to buy the book at any good independent bookstore. So please go there. But also if you're shopping online, you can buy at Barnes and Noble or of course on Amazon. And you can reach me on my Twitter handle at Narina Hertz. Narina,
0: thank you so much for all of us for all of it. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and me at Laura Zaro. Um, thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Laura Zaro. You've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone, and reach out to each other along the way. For more insight from Business Radio